40 here. So I've played a lot of uh, Peter Zion on this show. He's a geopolitical strategist. He comes from Stratford, which is like a, a private version of the CIA. And it's interesting kind of deconstructing, decoding how Peter Zion works, like what makes him so successful within, within a couple of hours of uploading a typical video that uh, probably takes him about 10 minutes on average to make. He has like 40,000 views. So he's the most popular YouTube political analyst. And I think the major reason is because of how he makes people feel, all right? To the extent that Dennis Prager is a successful public figure, it's because he makes people feel amazing. They feel like they're getting these profound, life-changing, universe-shattering insights. So too with Peter Zion, you feel like you're getting the real deal, understanding how the world really works. You feel like you're part of a special group, an in-crowd who understands, you know, geopolitical strategy. So Peter Zion and other successful commentators, gurus, YouTubers, pundits, talk radio hosts, they're, they're successful because of how they make people feel. All right, Sean Hannity, Tucker Carlson, all right? These people are successful because of how they make people feel. And there's a lot to be learned from Peter Zion's approach in that there's zero neediness that he's transmitting. All right, so you don't get any sense with, with Peter Zion that he needs you to feel any particular way about him. He gives off the aura that he's completely independent of your perspective on him, and that's such a relief. Because when you encounter needy people, it drags you down. It reduces your energy. It may very it very well give you a, a headache, all right? So compared to Dennis Prager even or, or Ben Shapiro or uh, Sean Hannity, there, there's far less neediness in what uh, Peter Zion puts out there. He kind of gives a, I don't care what you think. I, I'm just going to tell you what I think. And... Your, your opinions and your criticisms and how you feel about me just don't matter. And that's a pretty winning strategy if you want to be an online personality. So this is the Tim Stodd's channel. Here they I think are. this whole process and, and even a style. Definitely. Yeah, that's one of the things that stood out to me too, which I think we'll get into in a bit, but you, you, you hit the nail on the head, style. His delivery is different than most people who would typically cover this topic, which is definitely one of the things that's making him successful. And I think there's a lesson there no matter what you talk about as your topic for like a creator or writer. So as we dig into this, I want to I want to create like a framework for what the shape of the episode is going to be as well, because I think there are a few key lessons that you can really learn from breaking down any creator. We're going to apply them to Peter in this show. But really, if you're listening to this, one of the big takeaways is like, hey, here's a great way to just deconstruct what somebody else is doing in order to learn from them. So before we dive any deeper, I'm going to just give a little bit more background on who he is. I'm going to actually provide a counterbalance too. So people who are listening to this who already know him and they're like, dude, this guy's full of shit. I can't stand Peter. These guys are morons for believing him. I'll, look. I will acknowledge that that stance is out there. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to present the counter argument as well. And what we're going to do, well, I'll get into that in a second. So we'll, we'll present a little counterbalance just so that you know this isn't just a Peter Zion fan club show. I'll give a little bit of background as to why I still think it's a good idea not to write him off. Because as you've mentioned, he has some pretty interesting and unique. So, that so yeah, Peter Zion comes from Stratford, which is like a private version of the CIA. Surprise me. Yeah. I had never heard of them, but I think it might have just been like our generation was one step behind the news. So Stratford was basically mm. like the shadowy branch of the CIA. And for a long time, they were kind of unknown. And then they came into the public spotlight after a few like very public controversies. Um, but this is basically a consulting group. And they had an information network that was global in reach. And they used to consult with groups like the U.S. Homeland Security, uh, U.S. Marine Corps, Department of Defense, and then other groups like um, Raytheon, Lockheed Martin, major companies like Coca-Cola. What these groups do is they basically are in charge of developing information systems 
so that, that allow them to tap into things that are going on in the ground all over the world and analyze risk across a few different domains. So they'll look at things like personal safety risk, right? Like uh, an example of that would be where our war is about to break out. Where is the physical security of people not very high? You could imagine why that would be interesting or important for governments to know, but it would also be important for like multinational companies to know because they have employees in these countries or their supply chains um, rely on these countries. That's another area of risk as well, supply chain risk that they look at. And they'll also look at things like um, legal risk. So where are laws changing that may affect how a company does business or something like that? Um, and so Zion did this for more than a decade. He was there and uh, eventually left in 2012 to start his own company. And ever since then, he's been working solo, publishing books. And then he basically makes money through his consulting work. So he'll do speaking for these major companies or he'll do like executive briefs for these companies. We'll get into the business model in a little bit more depth later. But I wanted to just give that as a little bit of background uh, because I think it's, it would be easy to look at this person on YouTube who's just out there saying things and kind of, it, and this is where I feel that the, the criticism, specifically the podcast that I'm going to share in the show notes, maybe underestimated some of his qualifications, right? Because we as creators, we're so used to seeing people who are out here just kind of winging it, right? Saying things, yeah. Yeah, they're Googling stuff or they're looking at the news and they're just giving an opinion or something like that. But there is such a thing in this industry as people who are not playing with the same cards as everybody else. And when you look into the history of Stratfor, it's a perfect example. I mean, this was a private spy company. In fact, I, I dug into them a little bit deeper. You're going to love this. So the reason they came into the national kind of spotlight was that WikiLeaks leaked like 5 million emails from this company that showed everything about how it worked and like how they paid people off, how they got information. Um, I might even have a quote here real quick. Let me see if I can find it. And we'll, we'll link to this in the show notes too. So you can still find all the files so publicly. Right. So what makes someone successful as a commentator is not being right. It's not being wise. It's not being pro-social. It's not being good for people. That they can be, but what makes you successful doing what I'm doing right now, what Peter Zion does, is being interesting. So you have to say unpredictable, usually anti-establishment things. You're not going to get a large following saying that UFOs are bunk. You're not going to get a large following saying take the vaccine. You're not going to get a large following saying that uh, our elites and our governments and our leading politicians basically did a pretty good job with COVID. All right. You need to be interesting. You need to say something that people don't get on mainstream TV and in mainstream news sources. So the money is not in being right. right? The audience is not in being right or in being good or in being helpful or wise or pro-social. The, the audience and the attention and the money comes from being interesting, all right? which usually means being anti-establishment, which usually leads to people embracing conspiracy theories. Now, you don't have to fall in for this kind of audience capture, but that's the way these spaces work. ...available, but uh, it basically says WikiLeaks is publishing the global intelligence files, more than 5 million emails from the Texas-headquartered global intelligence company Stratfor. The emails date from 2004 to 2011. They reveal the inner workings of a company that fronts as an intelligence publisher but provides confidential intelligence services to large corporations and uh, government agencies. They show that Strat or they show Stratfor's web of informers, payoff structure, payment laundering techniques, and psychological methods. For example, this is a quote, quote, you have to take control of him. Control means financial, sexual, or psychological control. This is intended to start our conversation on your next phase. That's a quote from the CEO, George Friedman, to Stratfor analyst Riva Bala on December 6th of 2011 on how okay, to- Okay, he has Zion. built up a credibility, which- like I said, I think makes it easy for him to be. So he's published at least uh, three books. Now, 
I, I haven't noticed Peter Zion being more accurate in his predictions about world events than anyone else, all right? In, in 2010, he published an essay saying that uh, China would be kaput in 10 years. Obviously, we're 13 years on, and that hasn't happened. Taken seriously. And we wanted, I know that for those listening, it might have been a little arduous to go through all of that, but we wanted to really, really drive home the point that when you're making stuff, it actually does matter that A, you know what you're talking about, and that B, you're like skilled. You're a skilled craftsman. You're a skilled artist in any definition of, of the word is because there, there really is such a thing as being good at what you do. It's not so easy as, hey, just start making things and somebody will like it and somebody will share it and you'll just get rich. He, he's been involved for a long time in the world that he reports on. And so with that, I want to breathe some fresh air into this a bit and talk about how he is actually succeeding online. And this is something about him that I find absolutely insane. So I'm going to share my screen. Um, anybody who's watching the video, you'll be able to see it, obviously. So I want to do some math here. So this is his YouTube channel. All he does, and I'm not saying this to diminish the work because it doesn't seem like work, but we just spent half the episode talking about how inundated in this world he is and how much he's built up all of this credibility. But so check this out. He publishes basically five videos a week, Monday through Friday, and he sends it out through his newsletter. And I don't even know how we can do this, but this video is five minutes and 52 seconds. He grabs his cell phone every morning, basically goes into his backyard or wherever the hell he is in the world because he's always traveling to random countries, records at most a 15-minute video. And that's very rare. I'd say the average time is probably six minutes. They're hardly edited. I get the impression that he records a video on his phone, uploads it to Dropbox. Somebody does a once-over edit and then puts a featured image on it and uploads it onto his YouTube channel. So I'm going to say all in all, it's about, on average, 15 minutes a day of his work. And now look at this. 127,000 views, 425,000 views, 328,000 views, 515, 617, 401. It's just, it's, it's bonkers, the amount of... Right, and unlike uh, Prague University, which spends most of its budget on marketing, all right, uh, Peter Zion's views do not appear to be bored. These are, as far as I can tell, fair dinkum, authentic, organic YouTube views. Like, he might be the most successful YouTuber in the world right now, if you, if you take that definition of hours recorded in comparison to views gotten, right? Like this video is 12 minutes long. He recorded it on his cell phone in front of his school because he was visiting his, his family in, uh, I think, Iowa or whatever. He just grabs his cell phone, records his take, and uploads it onto YouTube every day. And so he's, he's averaging, I don't know, three times five, 1.5 million views a week, right? Like how much money is that in ad revenue? I, I bet he's making more money on YouTube revenue than he is on his consulting firm at this point. It's just, it's absolutely insane how he figured out. The reason why he inspires me it's just because he doesn't take it too seriously. And I really, really mean that. I struggle with publishing stuff and feeling like it's not published, polished enough or like it doesn't live up to you know, these other expectations that I've set and compared to what other people that I might be competing against have done. He plays by his own rules totally. He just says, yeah, I'm gonna record a video on my phone every day and I'm gonna send it out to my email list and I'm gonna be might arguably the most successful YouTuber in the world right now that nobody knows about. I just think that is so cool. And it, it makes me want to not take myself so seriously as well. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely something about this that I find inspiring, it's like similar, which is like, um, it feels like, you know how there's this kind of uh, fantasy among creators that like you're going to build an audience and then I'll finally just have my days to think and write, you know, or like I'm going to think and I'm going to read and then I'm going to share ideas. It really feels like that's what he does. And I keep trying to dig deeper into how his operations, because I know it's got to be more complex than that. But if you look at the timestamp on that video uh, screen, you were just looking at it, it was shared nine hours ago. We're recording this at about 4 p.m. Eastern. Um, and so that means, you know, let's just call it, what would that be? Uh, five hours before noon. What is five hours before noon? 7 a.m.? So by 7 a.m., the video is live, but it's live and he's talking about today's news. One of the things that's so compelling about him is not just that he has a counter narrative, but he's like hilarious in the way that he shares it. I always say he's kind of like a coyote trickster, you know? Yeah. So, and this may be the one redeeming quality for non-U.S. listeners, right? Because Zion is like, 
able to poke fun at the U.S. just as much as he is anybody else. He's extremely critical of like both government factions. It's like he's like a man with no country, you know. Um, and I think there's something to that, which is like, I, I think it ties into what you said. Don't take it so seriously. You know, you have to be you have to be able to make fun of your own expertise and your own opinions as a creator. Totally. So there's almost a juxtaposition between him and I'd say like a Ben Shapiro, right? Somebody that sort of plays in the same exact space and has the whole YouTube studio set up. All of the edits are probably checked over and then checked over again and checked over again, just so their point is so articulately laid out. And how do I say it? I, I don't watch a whole lot of Ben Shapiro. I don't watch a whole lot of people on, on the other side either, because I get the feeling that when they make those videos, there's so much work is being put into the framing of the opinion. You know, there's like the creation of it. And then there's, it's almost like all the time it takes to storyboard it out. You know, like you have to say in exactly this order so that the crescendo of the message like delivers our point home and everybody else is stupid and we're, we're better. And, and that makes me uncomfortable. It makes a lot of people uncomfortable. And then you have this guy who goes out for hikes in the morning. Sometimes he's wearing this like purple jester hat that is exactly as ridiculous as it sounds is winded because he's like up a hill. He's like breathing heavy and talking about these ridiculous data points about how, you know, particular pipelines need to navigate through certain geographical intersections and why that's having an impact on the food prices in France. Right. And then you think about it, it's like, oh yeah, like clearly that's going to have these second secondary effects that are going to make people think and feel that the way that they are. And so there's not all of this work in, in like, it's not just making it perfect. It's making it unarguable ish, right? Like, this is my point. I'm on this side. I'm driving this point home. And there's this dude that's getting more views than all of them in a daily YouTube video on his phone with a jester hat on. And there's, there's something about that, that I, 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 it's charming. Yeah. But it also, it just reminds me that if you know what you're talking about, you can do whatever you want. You know, there, there really just is a thing to being better than other people. And I think that's cool. There's a part of that too. That's like, no, that's, uh, dealing in the truth. Yeah, and it's not necessarily clear that uh, Peter Zion knows what he's talking about. He's presenting very much a cartoon version of reality, but it just feels good to listen to him, just like it feels good to listen to Barack Obama or Oprah Winfrey. doesn't necessarily mean that you're getting valuable content. So the tr- if you're dealing in the truth, you're never always going to be right, and you're always never going to be 100% right. And like that's something that I think gets lost, especially on the political spectrum of entertainment. You were talking about it a second ago. It gets old, man. Like I, I enjoy... Um, people like, I mean, I still enjoy people like Ben Shapiro or uh, who's the, the young woman, Brett something. She runs the comment section. It's Brett something. But, but they're great. Yeah, I, I enjoy them. I enjoy anybody who will bring like... There's a YouTube channel that I subscribe to that comes on sometimes. It's called Charisma On Demand. And it's a great channel, actually. I, I really love it. They take like movie characters and actors and stuff that, and, and real people and characters. People that have been universally decided upon to have charisma, right? Whatever the hell that means. And they did one on Tom Hardy. And one of the things that they said about him was that he doesn't act in a way that makes it so like he wants you to like him. He's acting in a way where you're deciding if he likes you. And as soon as I saw that, it made me think of the, the, uh, today's podcast episode because that's he, Peter Zion kind of has that thing about him where he's not necessarily trying to make it so that you like him. You, you get this kind of impression that like he's deciding whether he likes you. And it's a, a weird flip on it. And it's, you know, I don't know the guy by any means. It's just this approach that he takes to it where everybody else, they're formulating these arguments and they're creating these like entertainment channels where it's like, I'm right and you need to like me. And if you don't like me, it doesn't matter because I'm still right. Like they're forcing their, the, the viewpoint. Yeah, most most people don't have a, a pleasing personality online. Here, let's get a taste of uh, Peter Start Zion. with the good news. Uh, the mm-hmm. United States is the world's largest energy and agricultural producer and the world's largest energy and agricultural exporter. 
that's a good start. Uh, also, our baby boomers did something that no one else has did, and they had kids. So say what you will about the millennials, they're here. And that provides the United States with uh, ballast in its consumption, its production now, and will provide ballast with its advanced production, its tech system, and its capital generation in 10 years. That's great. I mean, but the, you, know, you can't screw that up. We'll try, but I don't think we're going to make it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the biggest. All right. This is not the voice of someone who deeply cares about what you think. This is not the voice of someone who's needy for your love and attention. All right. This is just someone making pronouncements from a place of supreme confidence. Challenge the United States is going to have for the next five years is rebuilding that industrial plant, hopefully before the Chinese system completely implodes. I doubt we're going to. And back in 2010, he published an essay predicting the end of China within 10 years. Obviously, that didn't happen. All right, more analysis. Point that they want their audience to have about them out there. You know, like they're projecting their most desired appearance. Where he's kind of the opposite way. Like he's actually not trying to make you like him. He's you get the feeling that in his head, he's always contemplating as to whether somebody else is full of shit or not. And I, so, what's his what's his business model here? Because his videos are free. His newsletter is free. How does he make money? Virtually all media companies are built on. You have free products, front-end products, and back-end products. Your free products are monetized via ads. They're always your biggest audience because they're free. It's the lowest barrier to entry. And uh, they are used as distribution to sell your front and back-end products. The difference between front and back-end products is front-end products are usually a little bit more uh, broad and they're uh, priced a little bit lower. Back-end products are much more specific and they're priced much, much higher. So for media, uh, typically front-end would be like 50 to 100 bucks a year. Back-end is like 500 up. And it can go way up into the thousands and thousands of dollars per year. Okay, so that's the model. As you would expect, Zion's business fits perfectly inside of it. So here's basically what he's got. He's got free newsletter, right? That's his main distribution. And then he's got Twitter and YouTube channels. And both of those promote the newsletter directly. So he's out there on social media, growing his newsletter audience via Twitter, via YouTube. And then also he does like a lot of interviews. So you can find him on other podcasts as well. The newsletter, as far as I can tell, doesn't monetize with ads. It's always free. And he actually makes a very big point of saying it's free. It's always going to be free, which is great. We talked about this in our two episodes ago as well. If you have even more expensive, you'll have consulting and speaking or speaking and consulting. It's probably, the price is probably off in that order. So Peter Zion may not be an expert on geopolitics, but he really does seem to know something about energy markets. Now, here's where the really smart thing is that I think all creators can learn from. And I realized this yesterday while I was listening to an interview with him. What he has done a really good, interesting job of is taking something that he's obsessed with and finding a way to make it relevant to clients that will pay a lot of money to figure out what you think about it. So the obsession started early. If you listen to, I I just finished listening to his book, um, The Accidental Superpower, which I think was his first one. He talks about how as a kid, he was always obsessed with maps. Like even as a baby, he was obsessed with maps. And that's where this interest in geopolitics first got its root. It's this obsession with how the world is shaped and how that changes us and what's over the next horizon and all that stuff. Okay, great. Now you could be obsessed with maps and you broke your entire life. So what Peter has done is found a way to take that information and package it up in such a way that uh, electronics manufacturers, agricultural giants, and energy giants and governments are willing to pay for it, right? So those are kind of like the three or four big groups that he talks to. And when I noticed that, the the thing in my head was just, that's such a good takeaway. Take whatever you're interested in and figure out how do I I show that this is relevant to a group that's got a really big interest in, a group that's got a lot of money and would benefit from knowing more about this. So I'll give a very specific example. In that last book, he's talking, he was written back in 2014 and he's talking about the shale revolution. Now, most of us as consumers, when I think shale, I think fracking, I think dirty oil, right? What's interesting about the book, and I've never, I've never fact-checked this, so somebody who's listening could fact-check it, but he basically says, actually, there's never been a single EPA water violation against a fracking well. This is, again, back in 2014. Um, so apparently, I'm going to get this slightly wrong, but like, he was making the case, this is actually very clean technology, but for the oil executives who want to expand into this, they need to find a way to communicate that to a broader audience, right? So the takeaway there is like, oh, he was talking about this particular 
technology that he finds has a very interesting effect, but then he connected it to a super high-end audience, energy producers, and said, hey, by the way, if you're interested in making more money off this, you're going to need to know how to position it so that this audience will buy in, and I can show you how to do that, right? Oh, one benefit of embracing like authenticity as a public figure is that your audience becomes a little bit more forgiving of those mistakes as well. Like yeah. if you want to be the person who's perfect, good luck maintaining that. Have you seen, uh, oh, what's his name? Who's the comedian who went through like rehab recently and just came out with a new special? Oh, oh yeah, of course. He, he wears the suit and tie. Suits. I watched yeah. it. It was so funny. It was really good. Yeah. Um, God, this is the worst. He's super famous. Anyways, whatever his name that is. That was a funny part about his bit where he talked about, oh, I'm going to go into rehab and everybody's going to recognize me. And nobody <laughs> yeah. recognized him. Yeah. But that whole, I mean, his whole recent special was really about how that fall from grace has freed him to be more authentic and more himself. And I loved it. I thought, I mean, I've always liked his comedy, but I thought this one was better than everything that's come before it. Okay, so there are a lot of really sharp uh, critiques of Peter Zion. I think the most important one is that uh, Zion presents a cartoon version of reality. But uh, this is a guy who does a podcast called War Affairs by Chris Canthon. He self-publishes a lot of books on uh, geopolitics, world affairs, economics, health, and uh, social issues. He just did a, an episode. Peter Zion is the Jim Cramer of uh, geopolitics. He says that uh, Peter Zion is so wrong about, about everything. He's wrong about deglobalization, the coming collapse of China, reshoring or friendshoring and manufacturing the future of the U.S. dollar and definitely his rewriting of the American empire's past. So this is some analysis here by Chris Canton. The name of the podcast is World Affairs by Canton. And Facebook is repeating Zion's talking points like a robot. He has single-handedly created a mass psychosis. No doubt that there's a huge cottage industry that profits from the China collapse narrative, but Peter Zion is the unrivaled leader now. Peter's predictions can be summarized thus. Total gloom and doom scenario for China's future, while everything will be awesome for the U.S. He also believes that the world will undergo tremendous deglobalization. But here's the deal. Peter Zion is the Jim Cramer of geopolitics. Cramer is, of course, the CNBC stock expert who gives terrible advice regarding stocks. For example, just before the Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, Cramer was recommending that stock. The joke is that if Cramer tells you to buy a stock, sell it immediately. Similarly, Peter Zion is horribly misguided in his geopolitical analysis and predictions. He's blatantly wrong about the past and the present and his predictions about the future are purely sensational. Yes, geopolitics has a lot of subjectivity, but this guy is so factually wrong about everything that I had to debunk his claims. First, Peter exaggerates and lies a lot. He sprinkles his speeches with extreme superlatives. For example, China's demographics is allegedly not only the worst, but the worst in the entire world's history. Furthermore, Zion blatantly lies about numerous statistics and facts. Let's take a look at two examples where Peter's predictions have been totally off the mark. First, in 2010, he predicted the collapse of China within a decade. He authored a paper for Think Tank Stratfor in which he predicted the economic collapse of China before 2020. At that time, his focus was on the alleged bubbles and the unstable economic system in China. Well, since his prediction, China's GDP has quadrupled from 4.5 trillion to 18 trillion. Second example, when the Russia-Ukraine war started, Peter had some bold predictions, all of which have failed to materialize. He claimed that before July or August last year, Russia's exports of oil would fall by 50%, after which the pipelines in Russian oil wells would freeze and explode, 
and then it would take decades to fix them. Well, guess what? Russia is exporting the same amount of oil, or even a bit more, today than pre-war. The geopolitical wizard couldn't foresee India and China stepping up and buying more oil and gas from Russia. Now let's go through some of Peter Zion's extraordinary falsehoods. Number one, China won't be a functional nation by 2030. Really, he has said numerous times that China will collapse by 2030. So how come foreign companies invested nearly $200 billion in FDI in China last year? And why would the US government place sanctions on 500 plus Chinese tech companies? Why would the Pentagon form military alliances like Quad and AUKUS to contain China? I mean, if China is going to collapse within a decade, the West would just sit back and ignore China, right? Peter the Fake should talk to the IMF and find out why they say that whopping 35% of world's growth this year will come from China. Meanwhile, the US and the EU combined will be only 10%. The IMF also predicts that over the next five years, for every $100 of global GDP growth, $22 will come from China and only $11 from the US. Thus, China's contribution to the world's growth will be twice that of the US. Also, nations around the world are signing multi-year and sometimes multi-decade deals with China. In conclusion, China won't be collapsing by 2030 or any time this century. By the way, China watchers and the US media have been predicting the collapse of China for the last two decades. It's a fetish and a delusion. Now the second crazy statement from Zion. Chinese Yuan has no value. For a supposedly geopolitical expert, Peter Zion has no clue about the internationalization of Yuan. So contrast uh, this podcast's manner, the, the energy that he brings to what uh, Zion brings. Like Zion just sounds, you know, a lot happier. He's, he's a lot more fun to listen to. So we're going to have a simultaneous shock from product shortages. At the same time, we're trying to build that dirty word inventory to insulate us. At the same time, we're trying to build out everything about our manufacturing system. This is going to generate what will probably be the most inflationary period, at least since World War II. And it will last for at least five years. Now, while we could theoretically screw this up, this is probably also going to be the fastest growth that America has experienced since before the Civil War, because we're looking at just a massive expenditure to build out that asset class that's necessary for us to have the things that we want and need. We're doing this with the baby boomers retiring. We're doing this with Gen Z, the young kids coming in. And boomers are the largest generation we've ever had. Gen Z is our smallest one ever. So we already have a shortage of 400,000 workers a year. So there's a saying in sobriety that uh, you want to live about two notches above boring. And there could be a sobriety in hosting a radio talk show or being a, a YouTube personality or a pundit. You want to be about two notches below manic. You, you essentially want to be almost dancing when you're, when you're speaking. You want to be giving off that level of energy. So it's absolutely nothing like a real-life conversation. All right? You have to come with about 10 times more energy than you'd come in real life. And Peter Zion does that, and his critic does not. So that's why Peter Zion is so much more pleasant to listen to than his critic. So here's some Zion. And it's time that we need to double the industrial plant. This is going to be rough. But on the back side of this, we'll have a more stable supply chain system that is largely within North America and is subject to North America things. That's not going to trigger a global trend. That's going to remove the United States from really caring at all about how foreign supply chains work. Okay, and so let's go back to this other bloke, uh, Chris Canton. 
He repeats the logic of Reddit kids. Okay, so just so much less energy. All right, just no skill with his delivery. It's just kind of downbeat and depressing to listen to him and to try to... He tries to add some zest to his podcast by playing music in the background, but I don't think it really is particularly effective. Always say that because the yuan is not freely traded in the global currency markets, it is useless. Let's start with the urge. All right, so just because he's a less effective broadcaster, right, just because he's less pleasing to listen to, it doesn't mean he's wrong. He's making some strong points. Scattering statistics from March 2023. For the first time ever, Chinese yuan surpassed the U.S. dollar in cross-border transactions in China. Whopping 3.7 trillion yuan were used in payments and receipts in just one month. And then there was a historic transaction between the UAE and China in March. For the first time ever, liquefied natural gas was sold for Chinese yuan. Within a couple of years, all the Arab countries will be selling oil and gas for yuan. That will be the true birth of petro yuan. Goodbye, petrodollar. Let's not forget. So a couple of guys have been calling out Peter Zion on this show for as long as I've been playing excerpts of Peter Zion. One is Laponius Maximus Meridius, and the other is Ultra Testosterone. Hmm. And that's going to so lead us to other countries to either pick Zion. up pieces or shrivel. Overall, I think you're on yeah. point. We're, yeah. we're going to have shortages in a number of products because of what the Russians are, well, because the Russian stuff is being removed from the system. Right. Former Soviet commodities being dumped on the global market since 1992 are one of the two biggest reasons why inflation has been so low exactly. for the last 30 years. And, and that's completely going away. So the oil situation. So yeah, Peter Zion exudes that kind of confidence that you need to succeed as a public figure. Uh, Chris Canton needs voice lessons. That yuan is one of the five elite currencies that make up the IMF's SDR basket. This is why 70 plus countries already hold yuan in their foreign exchange reserves. Then there is the astonishing fact that yuan is now used more than the euro for global trade invoicing. That is, countries around the world... So I want to look at uh, Peter Zion. Is he a guru or apply the gurometer developed by the academic podcasters behind Decoding the Gurus, Chris Cavanaugh, cognitive anthropologist from Oxford University, and Matt Brown at the prestigious University of Central Queensland in Australia. So... Characteristic number one of gurus is galaxy brainness, all right? An ironic descriptor of someone who presents ideas that appear to be too profound for an average mind to comprehend, but are in truth trivial, if not nonsensical. Gurus present themselves as fonts of wisdom, and it's an all-encompassing kind of knowledge that tends to span in uh, multiple disciplines and topics. Their arguments often link together disparate concepts such as quantum mechanics, logic, and the nature of consciousness. Guru will present themselves as a polymath. You can offer novel insights with reference to many fields. They'll allude to, their, allude to their own accomplishments and exaggerate them to a shameless degree. They'll confidently offer hot takes on technical topics and with a wave of their hand, dismiss the perspectives of genuine experts. Uh, I don't think he's high in galaxy brainness. Peter Zion speaks in a very plain way. He doesn't use unnecessary jargon. Okay, cultishness. Being a guru is a social role. A guru is only a guru if there are people who regard them as such. He doesn't Peter Zion does not try to develop a code, does not try to develop a parasocial relationship with his followers. He doesn't flatter his followers. He doesn't try to create an in-group versus an out-group of his followers versus everyone else. So I'd say he's very low in cultishness. Anti-establishment, he is, again, pretty low in anti-establishmentarianism. 
uh, grievance mongering, very low in grievance mongering, self-aggrandizement and narcissism. So, yeah, he seems to be fairly high in this one trait. Cassandra Complex saying the world's coming to an end. No, he's low in that. Revolutionary theories. I don't think he claims many revolutionary theories. Uh, Pseudo-profound BS. This is the core business, the stock in trade for the guru. All right. And so this is the form of their discourse. It's language that is easy to process. Superficially appears to be something profound. A part analysis turns out to be trite, meaningless, contradictory, or tautological. I don't think this applies to Peter Zion. Conspiracy mongering. That's not Peter Zion. Profiteering, you know, by shilling supplements. So I think he's low in virtually all the categories of the gurometer. So that doesn't mean he's particularly accurate, uh, you know, pundit, but I don't think he's a guru. I don't think he's trying to develop a cult. Use yuan more than the euro to buy goods and services. This should not be surprising since China is the world's largest exporter and... So how would I compare Peter Zion to Ian Bremmer? Uh, Ian Bremmer has genuine expertise. He has a PhD. Uh, but they they both offer, you know, a lot of perspectives on, you know, world events. I haven't listened to enough of Ian, Ian Bremmer. Ian Bremmer is not nearly as fun to listen to or to read as Peter Zion. Uh, when you listen to Peter Zion, you really get the feel that you're getting the inside scoop about how the world really works. With Ian Bremmer, you feel like you're you're getting you know, another academic perspective. Is the number one trade partner for 140 countries. Also, China's Belt and Road Initiative, the largest infrastructure project in human history, is helping the yuan go global. For example, Saudi Arabia is getting loans from a Chinese bank to fund Neom, the futuristic Saudi city. Recently, thanks to U.S. sanctions, yuan has become even more popular. 70 so I never feel like I've got anything particularly valuable from Ian Bremmer. So I, I do think I get some valuable insights from Peter Zion. Percent of the trade between Russia and China is now conducted in rubles and yuan. More astonishingly, Putin said that Russia will trade with Asian, African, and Latin American countries in yuan. This is a game changer. U.S. allies, Brazil and Argentina, have announced that they will use yuan for trade with China. And even Australian iron ore companies are accepting yuan as payments. Here's the big picture. Chinese yuan will become a global trade currency, and it will happen without the yuan becoming a reserve currency. So, for example, Saudi Arabia can sell oil for yuan, and then use the yuan to buy Chinese goods and services. If Saudi Arabia has excess yuan, then it can either trade it for Saudi rial, euro, or dollar. Now on to Zion's third claim, China's demographic crisis. This is perhaps Zion's greatest hit. His propaganda is a mix of facts, lies, and gross exaggerations. Let's take a look. For starters, almost all developed nations have demographic problems, i.e. the aging population, shrinking workforce, low fertility rates, etc. Thus, China's problems are overblown. In fact, China and the U.S. have the same median age. Imagine that. Half of all Chinese and Americans are over the age of 39. And of course, which means half of all Chinese and Americans are below the age of 39. China is actually many years younger than most, if not all. the. So I, I don't think this guy has a clue how demographics work. It's not just a matter about, you know, what's the, the mean age of your population. 
And getting back to the gorometer, so compared to virtually every other pundit uh, of which I'm aware, I think uh, Peter Zion is less damaging. He has you know, fewer of the characteristics of the, the meretricious and false guru that uh, seems to characterize people from you know, Dennis Prager to Sean Hannity to almost all the syndicated radio talk show hosts and the Fox News hosts. So you know, Zion may be wrong, but he's not going to damage people to the extent that uh, you know, falling into the virtual hands of a Dennis Prager or Sean Hannity or other typical right-wing talk show hosts will, will often damage people by damaging their ability to distinguish what's true from, from false. So people like uh, Dennis Prager and Tucker Carlson, you know, they push you know, vaccine skepticism and hesitancy and often directly anti-vax which I think is absolutely moronic and you know very damaging to anyone who takes that seriously. Uh, right-wing talk show hosts, they try to discourage people from mainstream sources of information. Uh, Peter Zion doesn't do that. He tries to just take the best of mainstream information, whether it's the New York Times or the State Department. So compared to your typical you know, right-wing talking head, I think Peter Zion is much less damaging. But Peter Zion is reckless with the truth, Right, he doesn't. Uh, he's not forthright with how often he's been wrong, right? So he often speaks with an absurd level of uh, self-confidence. Developed countries in Europe, like Germany, France, Spain, Italy, UK, etc. Also, in 2019, before COVID, China's fertility rates were much higher than these European countries, which have rates well below 2.1 or the replacement rate. For example, it's 1.2 in Italy and Spain. But nobody is talking about demographic crisis or economic collapse of these countries. Now, the excuse used by Peter Zion supporters is that these countries can depend on immigration to keep the countries young. However, immigration is not a panacea. If it were the case, all these countries would just open up their borders to immigrants from all over the world. The more the better, right? Obviously. So, Laponius is making some great points here in the chat. Peter Zion is not a guru. He's a smartass. Yes. And Laponius notes, I know plenty of successful people who spew total BS with total confidence. Confidence is the key. Some people are easily impressed. Now, the BS confidence thing does not work in any technical field where results come quickly. Good point. This is a crazy idea that ignores the numerous challenges associated with immigration. Take, for example, Sweden. In big cities like Stockholm, two-thirds of children are immigrants and non-whites. Europe is destined for chaos and even civil wars within a couple of decades. Even in the U.S., the supposed melting pot, the demographic changes due to immigration of non-whites is causing a lot of upheaval. Think of Trump's support. So, yeah, Chris Canton, absolutely right here that uh, immigration, massive amounts of immigration come with considerable costs for social cohesion, social trust. You know, any sense of a coherent society will be damaged by large amounts of immigration, depending in part on where does the immigration come from. In general, many countries will have all sorts of societal problems in the future. As for China, it has more leeway to handle the financial problems associated with an aging society. This is because the current retirement age for men is 60 and 50 to 55 for women based on their jobs. Thus, China can slowly raise the... And Interlocutor says Peter Zion is a huckster. I think that's a reasonable description. And Neocon ideologue used to work with George Friedman at Stratford. Retirement age, if need be. 
And other solutions for China include the use of AI and robots, offshoring low-end manufacturing, and even some immigration from neighboring Asian countries. Back to Peter Zain, who spews three crazy but popular lies about China's demographics. One, that there will be more retired people than workers by 2030. Number two, that China's population will drop by 50% by... So, question in the chat, is Laponius Maximum Maximus related to Gluteus Maximus? Yes, Gluteus is Laponius's sister. 2050. Number three, that Chinese are having no children. Let's take a look at the first claim, that China will have more retired people than workers by 2030. This is an absurd lie. In 2030, 26% of Chinese will be retired, while 63% will be of working age population. If China increases the retirement age a bit, there will be two workers to one retiree. This can be easily verified by looking at the current population pyramid. We know exactly how many people are going to retire next year, the following year, and so on. By the way, in 2030, China will be better off than the US in terms of the percentage of working age population. Now, Zion's second claim, that China's population will shrink by half by 2050. This is just... So, yeah, which uh, Chinese consumer products do you most associate with quality? Uh, none. So, Chinese universities are terrible. I think they only have two in the world's top 100 your typical engineering student in China will have to spend about 40% of his university education studying the learned works of Chairman Mao. Only about one out of seven Chinese graduates from engineering school, right? Only one in seven graduates of Chinese engineering programs have sufficient skills to maintain an engineering job overseas. Uh, Chinese workforce, it's about half the productivity of Turkey, those awesome you know, Turkey <laughs> workers, or, or China, about half, half as uh, productive <laughs> as, uh, as Turkey. So I, I get most of my information about China, not from uh, Peter Zion, but from uh, Michael Beckley, right? So he's written a couple of books on China, which I think are excellent and many award-winning articles. So here are his books. Right, Latest is The Danger Zone, The Coming Conflict with China, and then the one he came out with in 2017, Unrivaled, Why America Will Remain the World's Superpower. So he's an academic. He's a much more serious scholar than Peter Zion. And Facebook is repeating Zion's talking points like a robot. He has single-handedly created a mass psychosis. No doubt that there's a huge cottage industry that profits from the China collapse narrative, but Peter Zion is the unrivaled leader now. Peter's predictions can be summarized thus, total gloom and doom scenario for China's future, while everything will be awesome for the US. He also believes that the world will undergo tremendous deglobalization. But here's the deal. Peter Zion is the Jim Cramer of geopolitics. Cramer is, of course, the CNBC stock expert who gives terrible advice regarding stocks. For example, just before the Silicon Valley Bank collapsed, Kramer was recommending that stock. The joke is that if Kramer tells you to buy a stock, sell it immediately. Similarly, Peter Zion is horribly misguided in his geopolitical analysis and predictions. He's blatantly wrong about the past and the present, and his predictions about the future are purely sensational. Yes, geopolitics has a lot of subjectivity, but this guy is so factually wrong about everything that I had to debunk his claims. First,
so e everyone I know who ha has bought from from China just uh, they just recognize that the Chinese were trying to cheat them in every single you know thing that they could right worse than anyone else that they had to deal with in the world it's not mathematically possible all the forecasts say that China's population will be down 50% by the year 2100 not 2050 so shameless Peter Zion just fudged the statistics by staggering 50 years. There is a Chinese professor named Yi Fuxian who lives in the US. He is very anti-Chinese government and has written many articles about how the government lies about the population. He claims that China's population is 120 million less than the official numbers. But even according to that gloom and doom professor, China's population will be 1 billion by 2050 and not 650 million, as Peter Zion claims. Let's discuss the last point about Chinese having no children. Once again, a typical Zion exaggeration. In 2019, before the pandemic, Chinese had 14 million children that year. The newborn number fell dramatically during the COVID years to 10 million. It's bad, but it's not zero, as Peter dramatically claims. What a doofus. Even if the number of new babies stays at 10 million a year on the average, there will be 100 million new Chinese within a decade. The Chinese government can also nudge the numbers up with good policies, like say tax cuts and subsidized housing for couples with kids. One final note on population. Uh, the AI experts like Kai-Fu Li predict that half of the jobs will be gone by 2040, thanks to robots, automation, and artificial intelligence. Given such radical transformations, China will be better off with fewer people. Now Zion's fourth crazy analysis. China's dependency on food and how 500 million Chinese may die within a year. This is another sick disaster porn spread by Peter Zion. According to this deranged narrative, if the US refuses to protect the trade routes in the oceans, then other nations will attack ships that carry food to China. And since China is so food insecure, 500 million Chinese will die within a year. My God, there are so many insanely wrong things about this narrative. It's hard to know where to begin. First, China is not food insecure. China is the world's largest producer of wheat, rice, vegetables, fruits, chicken, pork, etc. China is self-sufficient in food. Nobody will die. So China uses about 40% of its workforce in, in agriculture. Right, the United States uses about one percent of its workforce in agriculture. So China is just incredibly, incredibly inefficient. Uh, they've also just polluted the heck out of their country. Like almost nobody wants to go visit China for pleasure because it's such a filthy, polluted country. And also, all the pollution has probably taken a substantial toll on destroying the cognitive capacity of many of Chinese children who have an absurdly large number of uh, children with IQs below 85. Uh, my, most Chinese do not even go to high school. Right? That's how uneducated they are. Most Chinese do not even go to high school because to go to high school in China, you have to pay for it. Most Chinese can't afford to pay to even go to high school. So they have, uh, in general, about a 7th or 8th grade level of education. They have famine. The only thing that China depends a lot on other countries for is soybeans. And what is it used for? Feeding pigs and cows. So in the worst case scenario, there will be disruption to soybean supply. 
then the Chinese people will have to eat a little less pork. Or they can even get sunflower seeds from Russia and substitute it for soy. By the way, if you had followed the recent news on Brazilian President Lula's visit to China, you would know that China doesn't have to worry about soybeans since Brazil is the world's largest exporter. Next, the fifth crazy Zion claim. Many countries hate China. Peter also claims that numerous countries hate China and are just waiting to attack it or would like to see China collapse. This is just an American wishful thinking, similar to how Biden and the media crowed that Russia would be isolated after the US-EU sanctions. But that never happened, obviously. China is very smart at diplomacy. Just look at how leaders of countries all around the world line up to visit Beijing. Just in the last few months, leaders of Germany, France, EU, Brazil, Malaysia, Singapore, etc. have gone to China. Even though some countries like Vietnam and the Philippines have serious disputes in South China Sea, their largest trade partner is China. Their economies are deeply interlinked with China in a win-win relationship. In a recent study by the Australian Lowy Institute, China was a clear winner in Southeast Asia in terms of economic and diplomatic influences. And don't forget that 157 countries have signed up for China-led Belt and Road Initiative. China has spent $1 trillion on thousands of infrastructure projects around the world and has built a huge reservoir of goodwill. African leaders openly mock American and European leaders. Okay, that's absurd to argue that uh, China has built up a huge reservoir of goodwill. Who are China's allies? Like, who wants to be standing side by side with China? Right? Who wants to embrace China as an ally. China has almost no allies. The U.S. has dozens of key allies, including all the countries that surround China, such as India, uh, Japan. Uh, we have alliances with Vietnam, with, with the Philippines, with Australia, the United Kingdom, uh, France, Germany. I, I mean, the U.S. has all the allies. China has virtually none because almost every other country loathes and hates China because of the dishonest selfish, uh, awful way that they operate, including inflicting the world with every major epidemic we've had for at least 100 years, right? The Spanish flu was primarily a Chinese flu, came from China. Then China gave us COVID. And every major epidemic that we've had has come from China. So this idea that, that China has enormous reservoirs of goodwill among other countries is absurd. And Wow, they, they have some goodwill from Africa. If the entire continent of Africa just disappeared tomorrow, our lives would hardly be affected, right? Africa accounts for, for virtually nothing as far as, you know, power, economic or military or importance in the world. ...about the anti-China obsession. When Xi Jinping went to Saudi Arabia last December, 20 Arab leaders from all over the region came to meet with him. I mean, is there any major power that is despised as widely hated, looked down upon, distrusted, loathed uh, compared to China? Like every, always everybody loathes China. Like who wants to be in bed with China? Like, yeah, in necessity, people will get some manufacturing done in China, but they loathe the Chinese government. That's real geopolitical power. Heck, even French President Macron started talking about multipolar world after visiting China. Then there is BRICS, a coalition of Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. With uh, two rivals of America, China and Russia, one might think that the group would be a pariah. Well, guess what? 19 countries have applied to join BRICS. 
and the new aspiring members include Saudi Arabia, Iran, Egypt, Indonesia, and even Mexico. Yeah, people will do deals with China. Right? People will do deals with people they hate. Right? People will work for people they hate if they paid well enough. But uh, China doesn't exactly have enormous reservoirs of goodwill out in the world. Incredible. Bottom line, Zion has a preposterous and misinformed understanding of the world. The sixth point, blockading China. Peter Zion's fantasy of other countries blockading China ignores the reality of how the world works. First, nobody can just disrupt sea trade. If it were that easy, the U.S. would have blocked all seaborne oil from Russia in the last year. But that never happened. Why? We live in a deeply interconnected world. China is the world's largest trading nation. It no, no. The U.S., if, if the U.S. had blockaded Russia, that would be an act of war. Right. We're certainly marched up to the edge of an act of war with our in-depth, comprehensive, you know, multi-billion dollar support of Ukraine. But uh, no, just because the U.S. has not you know, gone to war with Russia doesn't mean that uh, China might not be vulnerable to some sort of naval blockade. Because, yeah, China's got the world's biggest navy, but it's crap. It's like Chinese goods. It's crap. It's really poor quality it, uh, it doesn't have much uh, force projection power. It's, its technology is ancient. And now with, with uh, you know, high-tech bans against uh, you know, sharing uh, high-level computer chips with China, China's going to fall even more dramatically behind. Imports $3 trillion of goods and services and exports $4 trillion of goods and services. The importers want Chinese money and exporters want goods. Neither one is going to blockade China. Also, China is a nuclear power with missiles that can reach any part of the world. Nobody will dare to hijack Chinese goods. Bottom line, no country will listen to the US and block Chinese ships. Moreover, uh, consider medicines and antibiotics for which China is the single most important country in the global supply chain. 50% of world's antibiotics come directly from China or they are made from raw materials that come from China. Can the U.S. survive without antibiotics? Take India, which is a significant exporter of generic medicines. However, 70% of Indian medicines are dependent on raw materials from China. Thus, blockading China means deaths, not in China, but in the rest of the world. Not an exaggeration. Similarly, what happens to the three American giants, Apple, Walmart, and Amazon, which have a combined market cap of $4 trillion? So... Don't you think that uh, America's learned something from the last few years and there is a significant reshoring movement of American manufacturing and even companies like Apple are looking to places like Vietnam and elsewhere to try to build their products. I mean, people are looking to get the hell out of China. It won't be easy and it won't in all likelihood happen quickly, but it is certainly a trend. If there is a blockade on China, of course, their stocks along with the entire U.S. stock market will crash. And the U.S. retail industry is $6 trillion and accounts for nearly 25% of U.S. GDP and directly employs 15 million people. Imagine the store closures, unemployment, and even riots in the U.S. without Chinese goods. There are many more such examples, like rare earth metals, critical minerals, electronics. Okay, rare earth metals are not rare. It's just that it's such a low-profit business that uh, no one else wants to really do it. But if, if we needed to, we could do, you know, rare earth mining in Australia or elsewhere in the world. Computers, batteries, and so on. Yeah, batteries. 
How long can an economy function without batteries? China's global market share of rare earth refining is formidable 80%. And these rare earth metals are indispensable in all high-tech products. And even in semiconductor manufacturing, China is way... Right, this is like the uh, the cheerleader who, who boasts that she guzzles, you know, 80% of the semen in her particular high school because, you know, all the other girls don't want to you know, swallow loads. But because she is so eager to swallow loads that she can claim, hey, I've got, you know, 80% of the rare rare earth, you know, semen going down my throat. You know, I'm such a star. Ahead of the U.S. and Europe in mid-range chips. By 2025, China will be producing half of all 20 nanometers and larger chips. While these are not cutting edge, they run cars, robots, medical devices, household appliances, etc. Furthermore, China is already the world leader in printed circuit boards as well as testing and assembly of semiconductor chips. Thus, China is an indispensable player in the global supply chain of semiconductors, without which no modern economy can function. Furthermore, China has another option besides the sea routes, thanks to the highways and railways of the revitalized ancient Silk Road. So I'm just glancing at Fox News while doing this stream. I mean, how pathetic is Fox News right-wing media that for, what, a month now, the number one story is that, you know, Joe Biden doesn't have much contact with his seventh grandkid. And, you know, Hunter Biden is overwhelmingly the focus of right-wing news and Fox News that uh, there might have been, you know, cocaine in, in the White House. I mean, the nonsense that the right-wing media, the right-wing punditry and places like Fox News focus on is ridiculous. For example, China gets a lot of oil and gas from Russia and Central Asia all through land. Plus, every month, more than 1,000 freight trains transport goods from China to numerous European cities. Finally, China has the option to retaliate. China now has the world's largest navy and thus can easily block trades of Taiwan, South Korea and Japan. China can also seize all the U.S.-EU companies operating out of China. Think Tesla, BMW, Apple, Nike, GM, Boeing, Starbucks, Marriott Hotels, and on and on. So let's put it this way. There won't be any blockading of China. Pure rubbish narrative. Number seven, fantasies about deglobalization. Peter Zion wrote an entire book on deglobalization, a complete bogus notion. No, the world is too interconnected and interdependent for any sort of deglobalization. Well, we went through a substantial deglobalization in, in 2020 when global supply chains strained and into like 2022, all right, global supply chains were under a great deal of strain. So we've already undergone a, a mini deglobalization. And we certainly seem to be on some kind of trend where we'll have you know, more reshoring of manufacturing and less reliance on places like China. At the most, there will be fringe reshoring to de-risk supply chain for some essential products. The first problem with his narrative is his U.S.-centric views. Basically, what he says is that the U.S. will move manufacturing away from China and therefore the world will deglobalize. What a narcissistic view. That's like saying, well, I'm getting a divorce, so the entire notion of marriage in the world is disappearing. But he's also wrong about the U.S.-China decoupling. Let me quote a recent speech by a U.K. foreign minister. It would be clear, easy, and perhaps even satisfying for me to declare a new Cold War and say that our goal is to isolate China. However, it would also be wrong. 
because it would be a betrayal of our national interest and a willful misunderstanding of the modern world. This logic applies to the U.S. as well. This is why a few days ago, U.S. Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen said, we do not seek to decouple our economy from China's. A full separation of economies would be disastrous for both countries. Similarly, EU President von der Leyen recently admitted it's neither viable nor in Europe's interest to decouple from China. So what is Peter Zion's solution? So the U.S. is less dependent on international trade, either as for exports or imports than any other major power, right? The U.S. is the most self-sufficient, autarkic, the least vulnerable to ripples in, in trade compared to every other major power. Like every other top 20 world economy, the U.S. is more self-sufficient. So easy. Just move manufacturing from China to Mexico. Hello? Two glaring problems with this silly idea. One, China's manufacturing is 20 times larger than Mexico's, which means just to reshore 5% of China's production, you would have to double Mexico's production. And guess how long it took for Mexico to double its manufacturing capacity last time? 20 years. Similarly, for India, it took 15 years to double its manufacturing. It's not easy, folks. Second, China's exports are not just t-shirts and shoes. China's manufacturing is not just assembling iPhones. China has changed a lot. 60% of China's exports are now medium and high-tech products. For well, they're not that high-tech, <laughs> all right? Uh, China puts together bits that other people design and market, right? China does bottom-of-the-barrel manufacturing, right? They don't do much innovation. They, they stick together bits that other people design and market and profit from. And Chinese workers, right, they're becoming increasingly expensive compared to workers elsewhere in the world. For example, the U.S. Navy depends on precision tools imported from China. Manufacturing such tools require highly skilled workers and cutting-edge factories. Then, take a look at critical minerals and rare earth metals. The U.S. depends on China a lot for 25 such critical minerals. And the dependency on China varies from 50% to staggering 100%. The minerals include lithium, cobalt, nickel, graphite, magnesium, etc. Right. So as long as China absurdly subsidizes many of its industries and you know goes into industries like rare earth metals that are not particularly profitable, right? They they can you know hive off an enormous share, a market share, because these are not you know profitable industries. They require a lot of subsidizing. So if uh, if China is forced to get out of the game or someone else gets into the game and they're able to do it more efficiently, right, the, the dependence on China is going to decrease. As for Europe, it gets 98% of rare earth minerals from China. China also has virtual monopoly in many products made from rare earth metals. For example, China makes more than 95% of the world's so-called permanent magnets. These are used in everything from computer hard drives and medical devices to electric cars, fighter jets, and missiles. Thus, when you look at what the U.S. imports from China, it's obvious that Mexico or any other country cannot replace China. Even with something like assembling iPhones, that seems easy on the surface, China's market share is still close to 90%. India started the assembly of iPhones in 2017. After six years, India manages to assemble only 7% of the iPhones. There has been one more unintended... So India is not going to become you know, a great power. Right. The average IQ in India is about 81. 
right? The average African-American IQ is like 85. The average uh, Latino IQ in the United States is about 90. Uh, the average IQ of Chinese Americans is around 105, but uh, may very well be considerably lower in China due to all the population and malnutrition. Consequence of the West French shoring effects. It has made the friends more dependent on China. Jean- and uh, the chat says the one is funny money. All the talk about replacing the dollar is ridiculous. Leads don't want to pay American workers so they will find you know, other countries full of slave labor to do it, even if they don't use China. Many shenanigans behind the one. But uh, the Chinese still dominate the rub and tug industry. Genius. For example, Samsung moved all its phone assembly to Vietnam. But guess what? Most of the components still come from China. While you may see more made in Vietnam, uh, made in Thailand, etc., on the uh, labels in the stores, they will still mostly be made in China. So you see, decoupling is a... And uh, 40 has massage parlors, you know, all around him. That's true. But I do never visit. You know why I never visit? Because I know if I go once, I would just keep going back. Uh, I, I have to absolutely never visit a prostitute, you know, never get it, you know, start that habit of paying, paying money for a sexual release because I don't think I'd be able to control myself you know, once I got off the hook. Delusion. The U.S. economy cannot function without other countries. And that's true for China and all other countries. Next, let's talk about food. One of Peter's ridiculous claims is how the U.S. is not dependent on other countries for food. Once again, he doesn't care about facts and statistics. The U.S. imports as much food as it exports, about $175 billion. If you have been to a grocery store in the U.S., you... Okay, let's get a little bit more sophisticated perspective on Peter Zion. This is from a practitioner of integral, uh, integral philosophy. I think his name is Jay Lawrence here. Peter Zion and the missing piece in uh, public discourse. So let's. I mean, ah, buffering, buffering. I'm trying to run a show here, guys. Appreciating amount of photoshopping, or it looks like something I would do with a jar of wine. Anyway, it is. Stop, stop buffering. To just marvel, in kind of a bad way, (laughs) about the mainstream intelligentsia, the leading public intellectuals, who I talk about all the time, various ones, and just how much it would help them if they were able to factor cultural and consciousness evolution into their analysis. And I'm going to share one today, at least. We'll see how much time we have. This is one of the new, most, I think, exciting public intellectuals. I discovered him um, in the last six months. And that's Peter Zihan. And he is the author of a book called The End of the World is Only the Beginning, Mapping the Collapse of Globalization. He's in that tier up there with Yuval Harari, when the $50,000 a pop speech, the, that stage of um, you know, the, the intelligentsia economy. So and he's good. He's, a, he's an integrative thinker, I would say. He's proto-integral. I've mentioned it before. So that Yuval Harari just gives me the creeps. Oh, I can't. can't yeah, not, not a big fan of that, uh, you know, Israeli who, who, you know, writes books about homo sapiens and the like. He's definitely able to see systems of systems. He um, t- takes many threads, weaves them together into a very understandable story. He's very good at communicating with. So the threads of econ- economics, demography, geography, history. And to a lesser degree, culture. And he, he's kind of interesting in this way that integral happens. That, you know, there's a couple sort of ways that you can enter, enter integral. One is with a full green baptism. You know, you're going full on green. And the other is that you're adequately green. 
But your center of gravity is still pretty much materialistic and mainstream and right-hand quadrant, if you will. It's like Zihan, he, he, it's like he's playing a three-dimensional chessboard, but it's all material. It's not really any spirit behind it. There's no spirit of evolution, which is what I think integral brings to the party. But I am a big fan, uh, uh, and he's done. He's educated me tremendously on you know, China, India, the Russia-Ukraine war, Brazil, the drug cartels. He's very, very prolific. In fact, I was just looking at the um, YouTube for his last few, and here's his last four. And they're all in the last few days. Clean energy in Chicago. Why windy suburbs matter. Another one. Will AI steal my job? Testing chat GPT. So I did last week. Uh, the water crisis in the American Southwest. And then finally, the, the one that we've all been waiting for. Is it Oklahoma's time to shine? So anyway, this guy's prolific and I think really well worth listening to. I would, I would recommend him. What I'm going to do is play a segment from him on a podcast. I think that just came out this week. It's the Jordan Harbinger podcast. I'd never heard of him, but he's good too. I liked him as a host. And uh, here's a, a couple sentences from the description of the podcast. Jordan Harbinger writes, Peter and I explore how the globalized world came to be, the factors that contribute to its instability, and what chaos will, assume, well, and what chaos will ensue, more likely when rather than if, it all comes tumbling down. Listen, learn, and enjoy. <laughs> enjoy the story of it all tumbling down. So I'm going to play this short clip here. Uh, let me just set it up. So this clip follows a really virtuosic, vir virtu vir virtuoso, I guess, uh, description of the evolution of e economics uh, since World War II, and, and mostly because of World War II. And he talks about how economies before World War II were based on conquest. You went and took what you wanted, and this is colonialism and empires and so forth. Then, as he puts it, and this is a story he tells, and it's a good one, I think. After World War II, the United States had the only functional Navy, and we decided to make the world safe for free trade. So we would police and protect the oceans, and again, that, that was the beginning of globalization. So a country could, if they didn't have iron ore, they could get it. If they didn't have energy, they could get it. And that kicked off this last 75 years of the modern world, essentially. And Zihan focuses a lot always, it's one of his big themes, on demographics and the threat of depopulation. And he's with Elon Musk here. It it's, it's, it's puzzles me. And, and I, I want to take it seriously, and I do, because I respect these guys. But, um, you know, he tells the story about how when people in globalization moved from subsistence farming into town to work for the system, if you will, then children become an economic liability rather than an economic asset, which I think is true. And as he puts it, the world ran out of children 30 years ago. Now we're running out of working age adults and talk about mass retirement and so forth. And so here's the clip I'll share. We got the technological explosions that we know, but these were all nothing more than a moment in time, a moment that lasted 75 years, but right. it's now over. And so we now have to go back to what we had before World War II, but without people. That doesn't sound possible. It's not great. All right. So <laughs> that's pretty extreme. We have to go back to World War II, uh, except without people. And I actually, you know, and I like this guy. I'm not trying to play gotcha with him. I actually don't think he really thinks that. Uh, not... Okay. So compared to most other right-wing pundits and Zion's not right wing, but compared to the most popular right wing pundits, I think Peter Zion is is far superior in that he's just far less damaging. Right? He's just a smart ass. He's not he's not a guru. Like he's far better than say someone like a um, <laughs> a, a Dave Rubin right, here. Yeah, that's why. So right. here, here's yeah, yeah. his little critique of Dave. He wishes Dave he could do it, but he can't do it very well. So I give him to Yeah, like Dave Rubin just a pointless you know, presenting himself as having this vast expertise across subjects. It's just kind of rhetoric. He just, <laughs> just spews rhetoric about whatever topics in the yeah. news. But he's, yeah, he's also not somebody who says, like, well, I don't have the expertise to uh, assess this, right? So, like, yeah, he's yeah, not... But you, can't, but you can't confuse sort of lazy punditry <laughs> with galaxy brainless, I think. 
Yeah, so I'm I'm gonna give him two, not one, because I think he's not somebody that is averse to that. It's just he's not really capable of it. So this this might be the refereeing across all of them. He he wishes he could do it, but he can't do it very well. So I give him two. Mm-hmm. What about you? Uh, one. Well, my one. standards are higher than yours, as you know. So one. Um, cultishness in group out group dynamics, uh, creating the the kind of unhealthy dynamics about being one of the the good people. I, the, for me, for me, he does this. A lot. Again, he's not very good at it, but he, he really tries to do it. You know, the people listening his, to him, the ones seeing through well, the curtain he, and whatnot. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. But yeah, look, but here's the way in which he's similar, different. Um, on one hand, he's like this hyper partisan um, tribal, for want of a better word, person. Um, and all of the right thinking Republican MAGA types are, are, are awesome. And all of those other people are just evil, want to destroy America. But like, unlike some of the other gurus, he's, he's not so much, he's not creating like a little privileged intellectual. No, he is. And uh, complaints in the chat about uh, Sam Harris's monotone voice. So I had a monotone voice throughout my life, so much so that one TV producer didn't didn't want me to be a guest on the show because she just found me too stiff. Finally, about uh, 2018, I did something about it. I went out and got uh, 10, 10, 12 uh, voice lessons, spent something like $250, $300 a lesson. And I had, you know, my voice was locked down like I had Kermit the Frog voice. That's that's what my my teacher told me about. So yeah, Sam Harris very much stuck in a monotone voice. If you're stuck in a monotone voice, like go on YouTube, learn about how to get out of uh, monotone voice. But uh, I think this Dave Rubin decoding here by the decoding the guru's academics is a good uh, counterpoint to Peter Zion showing just how much less damaging Zion is. Is he has locals? Like he has an entire website dedicated to just creating those kind of communities. And he talks about them often. Maybe it didn't come up in the content we looked at, but he's often talking about how that's the real, you know, intellectual community. And if you join him behind his little walled garden, that's where, you know, all the good stuff is. And so I I just know from other content that that he is very much uh, like cultivating those unhealthy dynamics. Fair, fair. Uh, I'll give him a four then. Uh, Can you guess what I give him? (laughs) Should be a five, right? It's just, just that one. So... Um, anti-establishmentarianism. Um, no, he does talk about the tongue-in-cheek, the reptile overlords, things like that. Hates, hates what WEF. Um, yeah, he's anti-establishmentarianism. So WEF, World Economic Forum. So Peter Zayn is not anti-establishment just as a knee-jerk, right? I don't think one should be you know, anti-establishment as a knee-jerk reaction or pro establishment right sometimes the elites are right sometimes the elites are wrong sometimes the the people are right sometimes the people are wrong anti-establishmentarianist in the sense of the know-nothing anti-authoritarian yeah the thing is the problem is that he's pro-republican establishment right that's like why for me there's a little bit of a disconnect because like he's not don't trust anyone he's like completely trust Ron DeSantis and any conservative person but completely distrust yeah it's confusing Uh, because the American republican establishment plays up this anti-establishment persona or you know facade whatever it is yeah, yeah. I'm just so huge. sorry that everyone. I want to apologize now and forever for moving information from mainstream sources and whatnot. He's, he's kind of like Rogan in that respect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'll go five in the end. You give yeah, Rogan even five though. as well. So okay, well, yeah, consistent. Um, grievance mongering. Yeah. He's he's, uh, he's a very yeah. petty man. Like <laughs> right. So Peter Zion is not reflexively anti-establishment. He's not uh, grievance mongering as a reflex. He does have a list of grievances. He's got a list of people that have wronged him, and he's generally constantly talking about how he's misrepresented and attacked. Like he's, yeah, he oh, really. I didn't know that. I didn't oh know yeah, that. yeah, so yeah. You've heard. Yeah, Ben Shapiro's got this, you know, multi multi million dollar business. Yet he's just absolutely stuck in this boring monotone voice. 
a few good lessons could help ease him up. Uh, Ron DeSantis got a good chance to be president of the United States, but robotic, just kind of locked down, could uh, really do with uh, loosening up his voice, loosening up his, his spirit and his attitude. Yes, even people he like wasn't doing it. He wasn't, this he wasn't, Really? Really? Because he wasn't doing it so much in the stuff that we heard. Um, so I have to take your word on this. It, uh, he does. Like, he's, he's feuded with pretty much anybody that isn't hard, right? Like, you know, Quillette, for example, is dead to him because they, they publish some critical comments on him and this kind of thing. Like, he's always engaged in very petty dramas on, on Twitter and whatnot. So, yeah, mm. five. Mm. <laughs> yeah, Ben Shapiro talks too fast. <laughs> it's funny. He talks really fast, takes the most you know, conservative positions possible. He talks about, you know, the importance of, you know, the intellect and, and deep thought. But all he does is just, you know, propound cliches. No, see, I can't give him five because it just doesn't compare to the to the very detailed and elaborate um, personal narrative of grievance that some of our favorite gurus have constructed for themselves. Like just yeah. being a dick, being a thin-skinned, combative dick. It's slightly different. But, what would you give you know, Constantine on this? Well, similar. I mean, it is like talking about Constantine Kissing from a trigonometry podcast. I get that they get they, they become aggrieved often <laughs> when people. So almost everyone in the right wing space is just so deeply aggrieved, just so deeply feeling victimized, uh, so deeply feel like the world's slanted against them, that uh, you know they're they're being denied the the recognition and the money and the fame and and the power that should rightly belong to them. I almost can't think of a right-wing pundit or, or guru who is not, you know, deeply bought into the grievance victimhood narrative. Criticize them, um, and and look, both of them, and like, you know, it's not like they've even totally would play into the, this is what they took from us grievance narrative of the yeah. hard right, right, paleocon type thinking. Um, so that's what I'm giving before, but um, yeah, I don't know, like being fragile and thin-skinned and just generally pugilistic mm, is not quite a personal tale of grievance. Hmm. Okay. Okay. By the way, just tap your mic a second. Okay. That's all right. Just disguising that. Um, but yeah, I was just checking. I was just checking because we didn't do the thing of checking at the start that we aren't coming through the wrong microphone. So Come I was just on, guys. A person who overestimates his importance and would like to be, but he's he's not someone like Eric Weinstein who sees himself at the center of all plots, right? Around which things involve, mm. and he, I don't think he he kind of presents himself as you know like. So that's one of the dangers of going online and sharing your opinions. You inevitably start slipping into the dangerous powers of the e-personality, developing a, a grandiose and, and false vision of your own importance. So when people come into the chat and say, look, you're just talking into the void, right? You're, you're nothing. You're, you're nobody. Your words are having no effect. Nobody cares what you think. Well, that's far truer than my own natural inclinations, which are to you know vastly inflate the importance of what I'm doing. A cog in the right-wing machine right like so yeah, um, yeah i mean that's not how he would describe himself but but it it's how yeah. he comes across yeah he does present himself as like there's such a huge discrepancy of presenting himself as a thought leader and then the kind of 10 year old level stuff that he has so that that makes me want to give him a four just because of the delta there between what he is and I, <laughs> himself. because i referenced the like the high ceiling level self-aggrandizement of Eric. I'm actually lower than you. I'm going 3.5, yeah. Matt. Yeah, so, I, I can understand that. I almost, well, I almost want to go three. Um, well, Rogan got a five you... on this, by the way. So Really? Did he? Just yeah. uh, did he for you? No, for you. Yeah, he did. He got a five as well. So I wonder, I wonder what it made us think about. I mean, well, he did, because he's a, a massive he, self-aggrandizing he... piece of crap. <laughs> <laughs> All right, yeah, that's why. That's why. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, Cassandra, <laughs> Cassandra Complex, yeah, he is. Yeah. he does this. 
yeah. he, he claims it's just right, James Lindsay ish. I was warning but got, about this. Yeah. You know, it's hard because so many, so many, so much of right wing punditry is like this now, right? Mm. Like a lot of these things, it only just occurred to me actually, but a lot of this gorometer stuff is actually tapping like conventional right wing activist partisan rhetoric, right? No, but I, I think it's just, it's more that they have increasingly linked into the conspiratorial talk radio style, like with Trump, right? You know, in many, in many ways, Trump yeah, that's fits what, that's what I'm the saying. secular So, yeah, yeah, I just mean that. Yeah, I, that's, that's, yeah. I mean, I think from us. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Like, I'm not saying that Algorometer is tapping conservatism in the traditional sense. I'm saying it just, it actually describes what an awful lot of American MAGA-esque punditry is about. Grievance, yeah. um, Cassandra stuff, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, being anti-establishment. Yeah. Yeah. Cultishness. Yeah. So anyway. there we go. There we go. So five for me for that and four I'm gonna for I'm going to give him a one. On revolutionary <laughs> theories, I'm going to give him a one. Yeah, I'm, I'm also going to do that I, because I, I think he, like, he over... He overestimates things like the impact of his book, but um, yeah, just he's, he's mostly a, a parrot for other people's claims. So yeah, he's a one. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you have profound bullshit. Um, mm. At least in what I heard, he's pretty he's pretty much plain talker, um, and yeah, he talks at a pretty basic level. Yeah, like again, like, he he will utilize rhetoric as and when he can. Like you know, he would I think talk about what was that conservative thing like a mass delusion or whatever you know the that thing that Robert Malone was promoting or Peter. Right, this is a decoding of Dave Rubin. I think it's a useful comparison to the earlier decoding we did of Peter Zion. I mean, Peter Zion is so much better than almost every right-wing pundit of which I'm aware. So even if Peter Zion is absolutely useless, right, most right-wing pundits are actively harmful. Mass, mass formation hypnosis. Yeah, like that. But but again, that's not him, right? That's just him. He's just, he's parodying. Just, he's just parodying. Yeah. He doesn't get credit for that. So he's yeah, he's one. He's, he's one. He's pretty lowest common denominator in that sense. Um, yeah, yeah. Conspiracy uh, mongering. Uh, yes, right. Sure. Yeah, he is. Sure. Everything he said was like it was Alex Jones level. So yeah, it's Alex Jones level conspiracism. Um, he's not good. He's five. Um, and five for me too. Profiteering. Profit yeah, I'm gonna. Unfortunately, <laughs> I I just know that you know you you highlighted it in the episode that it feels like he would do anything to just get more attention and get more subscribers and uh, like yeah, more, more more ways to monetize things like he, he sold his did he say in that episode that it was off in his private jet to fly to someone to, to, to ring the bell of the stock exchange because oh, yeah, he yeah. sold his he sold his company to what was it rumble um, something like like you just know that he's in it for exactly this kind of thing like that's why he's in the biz to yeah do things like this um, so yeah i'm so, gonna give him five yeah yeah i gotta give him five too a successful property too it really it really hurt myself to think about how him and bill maher these two how years. wealthy they are how, how wealthy and successful and widely loved they are what a sad commentary on the state of the world <laughs> okay and our, our binary inputs matt um monomania does he have a single i mean he kind of does right it's just in terms of it's all liberals are bad like that's his explanation for everything i, I guess it, no, it would be the same thing as alex jones does he have a monomania no i don't no no i don't i think they don't have an obsession with the particular topic one of them is more specific and that can't just be their insane little rubbing partisan that's too general for a monomaniac Okay, fine. No. Uh, shilling supplements, yes. I I believe he does. And if he doesn't, I mean, we, supplements also includes gold. <laughs> so almost all these critiques here of Dave Rubin would also, would also apply to a Sean Hannity, to virtually every Fox News host, to almost every nationally syndicated right-wing pundit from Dennis Prager to Ben Shapiro. <laughs> and that, that, like the precious metals. Which Supp they... Supplementary currencies. Like yeah, so he does do that. Brewicity. I think he does attempt to do that, depending on who he's talking to. Like, he, he tried with Bill Maher as well. You know, he was trying to, yeah, you know, I'm a cool dude. I've done this and that kind of thing. Um, 
But I guess he's not like a, a Rogan or Jocko type. I give him a half. Yeah, the, the best uh, description I've heard of Joe Rogan and people like Jocko Willink is that uh, this is the equivalent of Gwyneth Paltrow's goop, but for men. I don't know. I, I think he meets... It's, it's kind of part of the problem. It's like he's slightly a chameleon to whoever, whatever serves his purposes in that moment. So, um, yeah, but Bill Maher, I would say, is like more of a bro. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'd say don't give him a Don't give him a And uh, question from the chat... Is the government ever wrong about anything? Referring to these two academic decoding the gurus guys. If so, who, who's to decide? Well, they point out that governments staffed by individuals. Governments make mistakes all the time. So they would never claim that uh, the establishment or, or the government or the elites are right about everything. Right? Governments made plenty of mistakes, for example, with COVID. Don't score on that. because it's, mm. it's, it's Charisma? No. Um... <laughs> I mean, well, yeah, so this is the wrong way to look at it because I was just like, no, he has no... <laughs> okay, yeah. But that's my judgment. He... But even them, like, can I not make the case that even... I know he has an audience and that kind of thing, but even amongst the people that like him, they tend to be like, oh, yeah, Dave, you know, he's... <laughs> he, he, he's not the best of us, right? Like, the, he's never kind of presented as the person that you want at the front of the line. Yeah, I guess so. Um, yeah, I think he's... Pretty... I think he does come across as pretty artificial. Like, he's got the patter. Um, he completely comes across as, like, a 1950s... Yeah, like, broadcaster um, type. Broadcaster, yeah, when he's doing his patter. So he's, he's, he's loquacious. He's, we'll give him a one for loquaciousness, but maybe not for charisma. He modeled himself after that... Um, or he claims he have modeled himself after, you know, the American... Uh, what, what would he be? Like, media pundit guy that interviewed people. The one with the... Um, wearing the suspenders. The Walter wearing Cronkite? Glasses. Yeah. So, you know, that's, I think that's why that comes through a bit. But, I mean, he doesn't do that well either. So, um, neologisms, no. No, no. Strategic disclaimers, no, he doesn't really. Like, because he's no. just... Um, he's like, right, hyper, yeah. Yeah, hyper partisan. Yeah, conspiracist doesn't, doesn't need to do that. Rebranding theories, no. 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 Loquaciousness? Yes, I said give him a one for that. Mm. He's, like, he's no, he's no Jordan Peterson or Eric Weinstein. But, um, but in any case, I guess he's... Again, he's not very good at it. Mm. That's true, I mean... I suppose I was probably going on his um, monologue show, but I think that is like prepped. So he's not, he's not working off the cuff, right? No. Um, like he's bad uh, actually when he's interviewed off the cuff usually. Actually, yeah. Like he wasn't the question with Bill Maher. No. He's but that's largely boring. because Bill Maher was, yeah, well, he's defense. Bill Maher wasn't making any sense either. But I think... Okay, great uh, comment here in the chat. And so we arrive at the long, slow ending of the stream with the podcast played over Fox News. How right you are. Take care. Bye-bye.